0: I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray.
1: Well, Ryan is with us today in case you were curious about that, but we really kind of, well, I kind of enjoyed um, Ryan closing and having the announcements at the end, so we're going to try that again today. Um, But there is one announcement I want to make, and that is that I hold in my hand a Youth Camp 23 information card bill there we go that is a teaser for next week we'll be uh we'll be watching a trailer if somebody uh, makes the trailer so pray for the people who have to make the trailer this week Uh, i think their last names are lander so that'll be interesting um but one of the one of the things that i enjoy about youth camp every year well like i said we'll hear more about that hear more the rest of the announcements at the end but um, youth camp has that infamous mountaintop uh, kind of history in, in, our, um, in our small history. Every year we've had church, I believe, every, time, every year we've been in existence, we've been a part of a youth camp. We used to go out to uh, Pennsylvania and participate. Uh, for those of you who know, you know that when you hear Indiana... You think of the city in Pennsylvania before you think of the state because it was Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and that locale that we would go to. uh, When it transferred and they booted us out of their camp and we needed to do it on our own, we've been largely revolving around Akron, and there's a lot of work that goes into youth camp. But youth camp's worth it because it's one of those mountaintop experiences. Most of the time when we're baptizing uh, young men and women that are making a profession of faith, it's not unusual for them to reference something that happened at youth camp. It's just the way that the Christian experience sometimes is. And we can look at that and say, oh, that's just so Western Christianity or something along those lines, but it's actually not. Putting too much stock in a mountaintop experience, that might be Western Christianity. But The Bible is ridiculously full of mountaintop experiences, and not just mountaintop experiences that kind of stand alone, but mountaintop experiences that set paradigms for the way that we need to understand God. Now, lately, uh, we had a chance to listen to the entire Lord of the Rings series on audiobook, which may not sound like much of a task, like, you know, read the book yourself, well, It was 60 hours of having somebody read to us. Now, when you take 10-hour trips to your family and stuff like that, you can get through a lot in in some of those times. But it was really interesting to just have the story told to us slowly. To realize the stuff that maybe not made it into the movies, but was a part of the original story, the original tale being told. And for the next seven weeks, I'm going to need you to do something like that. Because you're Christians, you're educated Christians, you know the story we're about to tell over the next seven weeks, but if my 60 hours with an audiobook and Andy Serkis doing all the voices and everything like that, which is pretty cool, so I'd recommend that to you, um, but if my experience of that can kind of set the way that I'd encourage you to be able to walk through this series, try not to jump ahead of where we are. Let's make our way through scripture. We're going to look at seven different mountains in the series that were called Summit, uh, Meeting God at the Mountain. Now, I stole the name from a book that uh, was advertised. It was one they were clearancing out. And I thought, wow, that's that's a great resource to get. It seemed like a neat concept for a sermon series. The book is okay, but it's been a good resource. And frankly, I'm just excited for us to be able to go through this entire series that way. The first mountain in the Bible, it's not the one we're going to talk to you about today, but the first mountain in the Bible is a mountain you probably wouldn't even think of until you think about topography and water conservation and rivers and those sorts of things. Because when you hear about the Garden of Eden, you hear about four rivers. What happens with those rivers? Do they flow into Eden? No, they don't. They're not in a, Eden's not clearly then in a valley if gravity works the way that it works all the rivers flow from Eden don't they which gives us an indication that may though it may not have been mount eden it was at least an elevated point because it watered the earth from that location when the flood comes where does the ark rest as its final point of safety on a mountain when people are in rebellion against God after the flood, what do they try to create for themselves? A mountain. A Tower of Babel-ish kind of man-made mountain. Why? Because we don't need mountains anymore. We can make bricks. And we, by our, our newest technology, can kind of replace God. It turns out people in their disposition towards God really are just repeating the same mistakes that we've been doing all over the day. The point being, though that by the time we arrive at Mount Sinai, which is the first mountain that clearly we're going to look at today, we have our first paradigm-shaping mountain at Sinai. Now, sometimes in the Bible, Sinai is called Horeb, and we're going to hear it at a few other spots where where people visit Mount Horeb as well. Same place. But by the time the Israelites arrive at Sinai, you've got to think... They were in another place where mountains were being created, weren't they? What are the pyramids? The pyramids are man-made mountains that can replace the need to meet God on a natural mountain. Even if you think through the statue in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about, right? This statue represents what? Hand-hewn kingdoms of various strengths, and and aspects of beauty and glory. And what destroys it at the end? Something that rolls down from a mountain. Mountains have this capacity in the way that God tells his story to reshape the way we think about God. And if there was anybody ever that needed their idea of God reshaped, it was those that had been slaves, whose parents had been slaves, whose grandparents and great-grandparents had been slaves. For 400 years, God was shaped by man-made mountains in Egypt, by idols, by various gods that made up the Egyptian deity. And so everything that you wanted or wanted to avoid was attributed to a God and The Israelites had that mindset. Moses, in fact, in order to be able to meet God, needs to go away from Egypt. And then when the Israelites are finally freed, where does God lead them? To his mountain, to Sinai, to Mount Horeb, to the mountain of God. And what Brad read for us is really, and this is where I would just encourage you, try not to jump ahead in the tail. You know the way that this paradigm gets refined in Scripture. But let's just join the Israelites in the beginning. People who don't know God, people who think about regional power and diversified power accumulated together in the might of Egypt, where the might of Egypt represents the might of the Egyptian godhead, they're now coming to one God who destroyed all of their gods in Egypt... And has now brought them to the place of his great power. Or at least, if you're a slave, you're thinking, this is the place of his great power. But already in coming, it seems odd, because Egypt is far away. And if God is a regional, local God, who has regional and local power, then this is a little bit different, because he was clearly powerful in Egypt, But now we've come to a new spot, and the Israelites are confused. They're confused because of slavery. They're confused because of the last three months that they've had before they've arrived here, where God has tested them through trial, through need and longing and want, through hunger and thirst and some frustration. Now they've arrived. And what Brad read for us started in verse 9. What I want to read for you is just make a few observations really from the foot of the mountain about the promise that God makes to these people. Now, in case you're wondering, this is the moment where God gives the Ten Commandments. We kind of skipped over those. Because the paradigm that I wanted us to be able to see at Mount Sinai is the God that they meet and not just the commandments that that God gives. So listen to the way that this is described starting in verse 1. On the third new moon third month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now those words might sound familiar to you, but again let's take a step back. We'll join the ignorant Israelites who have Echoes of old promises and echoes of old stories, but don't really have a concept of who this God is. Listen to what he's just told them. Five quick things. He told them, You will be my treasured possession, not the way that they understood the way that how Israel or the Egyptians related to their gods. You will become to me a kingdom of priests, not the way that the select priests of Egypt were thought of. The entire nation of you can be that way. You will be a set apart and a holy nation, which is really the same word. I'm just kind of giving it two nuances. So a holiness morally, but also a set apartness from the rest of everything else that God makes. You will be special and you will be moral. That's what he means by holiness. You will be protected by my power. That comes a little bit later when he ultimately, in in having given the commandment, says to them, "If, if we keep this covenant that we have together, then you can be assured of my protection when you leave this place. And the third thing they'll hear is that you will be recipients of my grace. In other words, God is unlike every other God that they had to appease, every other God that they had to impress, and every other God whose inclinations were fickle and whom they could not trust. Instead, this God is bringing them before him and saying, I'm not really expecting much from you, except for that you see me for who I am. Hear what I'm promising you, and believe it and enjoy it. That's what I'm asking you to do. But all the work, all the goodness, all the power is going to come from me to you. I don't need you to bring me food so I can eat. I'm doing okay. I don't need for you to sacrifice something to me because I'm doing okay. All the good and all the resources are going to flow from me to you in a very mountain-esque kind of way. The people at the bottom will receive from the God up top. But, despite every one of those promises, the paradigm that the Israelites need to understand is they, they cannot Manipulate this God, and they cannot overlook and underestimate this God either. We meet a God at Mount Sinai who is overwhelmingly different, a little scary, and yet confusing in a way that's attractive. We're going to draw some conclusions at the very end. But what I want to do is I want to take our time and kind of go through what Brad just read for us a little more slowly. So we're going to pick up at verse 7. The thing that I I think we pick up from Mount Sinai that we want to remember, and we want to not only just kind of understand at Mount Sinai, but take with us from Sinai, is that Mount Sinai required preparation. Listen to the way that the Israelites needed to prepare to just hear from and meet God. They've been slaves. They were set free. It's been a three-month journey And they arrive, and now it's time to get ready. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported reported the words of the people to the Lord. If you want to count Moses' steps, by the way, This is going to be a tough day of hill climbing for Moses because Moses goes up and down and up and down. I'm going to spare you some of the trips, but that's essentially what's going on. Moses goes up to talk to God and he goes back down in order to talk to the people. The people talk to him. He goes back up and reports to God again. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Almost like the end of Jonah, that last tacked on phrase is an interesting one, isn't it? Remember the end of the book of Jonah? It ends with these words, and also much cattle. It's an odd way to end a book. Now what Jonah is sort of picturing for us is the fact that God said to him, Jonah, you care about a plant, I care about people. Nineveh is filled with people, and you're worried about your plant. But if you're having trouble getting from plant to people, they've also got cows. How about that? What's more important, the people or the cows? The people. Okay, what's more important, the cows or the plant? Um, the cows. All right, well, you care about the plant. What's wrong with you, Jonah? Sort of the same vibe going on here. All that God has said and all that God, Moses has repeated sort of seems in parallel until the last phrase, do not go near a woman. Moses is kind of giving an application point, isn't he? Sexual activity in marriage is a good thing. From the very first mountain on, when God put Adam and Eve there and said, I want you to go out and be fruitful, that's the going near a woman. God was saying to Adam, Go near this woman. It's a good thing. Extend the garden. Subdue the earth. Fill the earth with little ones. And now, Moses on a different mountain is saying, actually, no. Ladies, I want you to stay away from the men. Men, I want you to stay away from the ladies. I don't want normal sexual activity in marriage to happen right now, and here's why. Meeting with God means shutting down life altogether. Purging everything that's normal from life altogether. You may not have the filthiest clothes, but all your clothes need to be washed. Why? Because what is normal and common is going to be removed. Because what is about to happen is going to be something that is completely other from what you've ever experienced before. It's a similar kind of language to when God was saying to Moses at the burning bush, sort of a miniature version of what's about to happen, I need you to take the shoes off of your feet. Because this ground that you're on is holy. It radiates out from it a purging of the normal. And so Mount Sinai, in this sense, through all of those instructions, from the ones that God says to Moses and Moses repeats, and to the one that Moses gives a little bit of application point in, life in meeting with God is not like the rest of life. Life in meeting with God is very, very different. Now again, for a second, stop being educated Christians. Stop the rest of it Stop going to Hebrews 12. Brian will get there later for us, all right? The end of the series, we're going to get there. But here, what we need to absorb is the question of whether we appreciate what it means to meet with the holy God. Most of the time, because of jobs, because of pleasure, Because of comforts, because of the rhythms and routines of our lives, we forget. We forget. And there are moments recorded for us in Scripture where people have their eyes opened and they don't forget anymore. Usually that involves somebody meeting an angelic being. Who's that angelic being radiates glory from God and like the moon is carrying some sort of illumination that's not theirs, but it belongs to a different realm. And when they show up, people are just amazed at the way that they kind of gleam and glow and they realize, I'm not meeting somebody normal. In fact, later on, when Moses meets with God, he becomes a moon like that to people. God's not going to give all of that to the Israelites right now. He doesn't open up heaven entirely and give them an angelic vision. He doesn't sort of reveal himself as he is, but he's going to bring them to a mountain, and he's about to impress them with something more volcano-like than heavenly, but it still requires that the Israelites take a step back from life, purge themselves of everything that sullied them, Eliminate from their lives for a season that which is just common and normal and say, I'm going to meet with God now. I'm going to ask one question three times today. Here's the first time. Is this us? Have I lost this? Have I lost this? If so, let's let's let God show us what he's about to show the Israelites. Because the first thing we see is that Mount Sinai requires preparation. The second thing we see, starting in verse 16, is that Mount Sinai accented God's presence to the people. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down, these seem the most unnecessary words you would ever read. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. That, in my reading of it right now, seems like something you might not have had to say. I've brought you to the foot of a mountain that for a little bit looked like a normal mountain. And now looks like Mount St. Helens is about to just spew ash all over you. And the one thing I want to let you know is, um, yeah, maybe don't come up here. If you fast forward a second and we get through to the end of... What God's going to do next is to give Moses, then, the Ten Commandments. Moses will go down, talk with the people. They'll say the words that Brad said at the end. Wow, this is really scary. You go, not us, because we're pretty overwhelmed by, if if we go, we're going to die. God's saying something very, very similar. But then Moses goes up for a while and doesn't just get the Ten Commandments, he gets kind of the rest of the law. He gets the end of Leviticus, or sorry, the end of Exodus, he gets instructions about priests in the tabernacle, he gets the book of Leviticus there. And Moses is up for a long while interacting with God about his law. What do the people think has happened? Well, if you read it without this context, it seems silly to think: oh, Moses died. Why would you come to that conclusion? Let's get a golden calf. Here's why they want a golden calf. This guy is scary. This God is intimidating and Moses has more than likely died. It would make sense because he just walked up the foot of a volcano to the spot that looked like terror, just complete terror. And this is the first impression god wanted to give the plagues generally made sense didn't they especially when you interpret them as god just sniping off egyptian deities so you worship a frog that helps you have babies the great i will give you so you want to see fertile frogs I'll give you fertile frogs. Like, that one makes sense to me. There's one that I don't quite get. It's the hail. Have you ever watched the old Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments? Hail, that that was the one, right? Back then, anything with Charlton Heston. I mean, it's just, I'm sure he's, you know, he's got a special base reserved in heaven. Um, I'm not positive he does, just so you don't think I'm giving some pulpit blessing on his... uh, on his status with God. But it was a good flick. What was interesting about it is that they interpreted the hail in a way that was really hard. When we were watching, uh, when I was teaching the sixth graders, the movie Prince of Egypt just came out, right? And they interpreted it a little bit differently. They brought the, the hail coming down like fiery balls of lava or something that were kind of hail-like but fiery. In in Charlton Heston's version, it Flows down, it lands, and then it explodes in fire on the ground. It's it's a tough thing because I've never seen either of those, and so I can't say which one they were, but it's a tricky one to interpret. It's a tricky one to translate, from what I understand, and it's a very tricky thing to try and experience, I'm sure. What are the Israelites aware of right now? Oh, this is where the hail came from. Did he shoot that hail from this mountain all the way to Egypt? Is that what happened? Because I see something that looks terrifying. Just look at the language again. Thunders and lightnings and cloud and trumpet. Smoke and a kiln and the trumpet grew louder and God answered in thunder. And then, verse 20, the Lord came down. It's like all of that terror was just his posse going before him. This is just going to prepare the way for the eventual arrival of God. And when God arrives on the top of the mountain, God says, hey, Moses, come on up. Now, Moses had said at some points, you know, I was, I'm not sure I want to do this because I'm kind of scared. I'm a little timid. I don't care what you distinguished yourself as before. If Moses goes up at this moment, I give him full marks for bravery right here because this guy is obeying God when it looks like God might kill him. And then verse 21, oh, by the way, tell nobody to follow you. Yeah, God, I think we're okay. But he goes back down. What are we understanding here? This God is, is terrifying. If this is the moment that set paradigms in scripture, and did you hear them in what Sue read? Psalm 50, the terror of the Lord that was that was just preserved in song centuries later. Did you hear the language from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, a trumpet blast calling us up to God as he comes down. It's the same language of what we're seeing right here. Mount Sinai is a paradigm for the psalmists. It's a paradigm for the apostle. And in some senses, this ought to be a paradigm for us. Have we tamed God? And because of the goodness of the gospel, have we made him safe? Now there is a refuge, there is a safety to God. But there is the lion in Narnia. He's not a safe God. He's the king, he's a lion. I got to think Lewis is looking at a moment like this and Hebrews 12, which I'm not going to steal everything Brian, don't worry. There you're welcome. But listen to the one moment from this that the author of Hebrews picks up. He says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, the author of Hebrews is picking that up from the entire scene. And the moment, this is the moment where Moses is trembling, is when he's not sure what God's going to do to the people that have just made a golden calf. He's trembling. The author is just saying, This was a moment that even caused Moses to shake in his boots. Sinai says, Prepare yourself to meet God. And then meet God. Not your God, not the tame God. Not the God whose rough edges you have filed off. Not the God who you've figured out how to conveniently fit into your life so he does your bidding. This God does no one's bidding. This God pleases himself. This God does his own will. This God owns the earth. This God sets the agenda. And you come to him. Same question, second time. Is this us? Have you found a way to make God fit into your comfortable American life? Josiah, when he was taking a class, I can't remember which one it was, some sort of science class. He's a scientist kind of person at school. So he takes all these science-y classes. And he was having a conversation with his professor one time where he was just saying, well, I'm, I'm a creationist. <laughs> I don't believe that this stuff has evolved. And it was interesting the way that the, the professor wanted to make some room for Josiah in his very clearly evolutionary-based class. Uh, was it the same class where they went down and visited the Creation Museum? Okay, same class. They, they wanted to go down because they wanted to take the whole thing apart and show how stupid it was that people wanted to go down to that. Um but when Josiah's when having this conversation with the professor, the professor said, fine, you can be a creationist as long as what you're just saying is that the Big Bang was God and that's about it. You can be a deist, I guess, but we don't want a God who gets involved in things. We don't want a God to whom we're responsible. We don't want this God. We want the God that I would rather just, uh. okay, we'll still call that God. He can fit into our class. And when Josiah was telling me the conversation, I was a little offended until I realized just how familiar that, that strategy is. I mean, God can't ask you to get rid of that. God can't ask you to do something different than the way that you feel would make you happy. God can't require things of you, can he? Do you see how easy it is for us to see this God, say, wow, that's quite a picture of God, but I'd rather put that picture in like a closet, shut the door, and if anybody asks, is that God here, then I can say, yes, we can go to the closet, we can see him, but he doesn't deserve to be over our mantle. He doesn't deserve to be in our our train of thought all the time. That's not the God that we can worship, right? Mount Sinai says, Oh, absolutely not. If you're going to come to God, he defines who he is Not you. So Sinai says prepare. Sinai says you're you're coming to the very presence of God. And then lastly, Sinai becomes a biblical prototype. Let's let him get up. (laughs) Keep that guy safe, Lord, because (laughs) we're not on like a highway here. So that's interesting. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. I told you the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at all of them, but listen to the way that God talks about Himself before saying what He wants His people to do. This is the way that Sinai becomes for us a bit of a prototype. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods, Before me. What's the prototype that he's setting before him? You see me, right? See the picture of what I did over there? And now you've come here. Are you rightly scared? Good. (laughs) Because this is nothing. If I brought you to heaven, you'd be dead. But if you're rightly scared right now, the thing that I need you to understand is. I'm the one who went there, freed you, brought you here. Should you worship anyone but me? No. You shall, verse 4, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting iniquity and he goes on and talks about that but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you hear the prototype just in the first two? I'm God give me my place. I'm God Don't make me or compare me so that I seem like something that's common in your life. I'm not a bird. Don't make me a bird. I'm not a fish. Don't make me a fish. I'm not a cow. Don't make me a cow. Nothing up, nothing down, nothing here. I am so different than all of these things that there's just no need for you to be able to mix me up. Don't bow down. Don't serve these other things. Because my jealousy works both ways. I'm jealously loyal. And I am jealously, jealously difficult to walk away from. This is how God wants to set up prototypes for us to be able to relate to him. Again, We may look, we sing of grace, we celebrate forgiveness. But does God ever back away from either of these two statements? Does Jesus ever come and say, really the big thing is to be kind? The the big thing that we need to do is just make a lot of room for everybody here at the foot of the mountain you know, so if some of them need to come up halfway, let's just take down the fences and stuff like that. It'll be all right. No, that, that's not the paradigm he sets up. If you're going to worship me like I'm something else, you're not worshiping me. And if you're going to put me up so that something else is my peer, you're not worshiping me. The paradigm then after all of that happens and, and Moses brings down the, the commandments that he's just heard from the Lord, Verse 18, this is the last part of what Brad read. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses Said to the people, Do not fear, for the Lord has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, Proverbs says, of wisdom. But wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, is not simply knowing more, not memorizing pithy statements. Wisdom is taking the way that God has shaped your mind so that your behavior is in, is in just complete unity with what God has said about himself. Wisdom is living out what we know to be true. And where does the book of Proverbs say that it begins? By fearing God. Exactly the point Moses is making right here. So that you don't become a fool and run away in your sin, the Lord wants to set this moment in your psyche. He wants to burn this into you so that you remember this. God is worthy of your fear. He is worthy of your awe and your respect in the way that nothing else in this world is. And this is the one spot that people get right. We can't live before this, God. We can't. You have said it plenty of times. God has said it plenty of times. None of us can ascend the hill of the Lord and be with you. So we need someone to go for us. We need someone who comes down from the mountain and then goes up the mountain for us. And Moses was a prototype, but he wasn't the product. He wasn't the one who could come from heaven. He wasn't the one who could reascend to heaven. and in fact, this is what the series is going to unpack for us, is that the problem that Sinai sets before us, is the thing that the gospel solves. Sinful people cannot come to a holy God. They simply cannot come to a holy God. They will need an advocate. And so verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's sum up. At Sinai, we find the horrors of God's holiness. We do. We find an unapproachable God requiring a substitute and a representative for the people. If the people want to meet with God, something will have to happen because we cannot all just rush up this mountain and be okay. That's not the way this is going to work. And so we see the horrors of God's holiness. But secondly, we see the safeguards of his grace. Look at verse 21 again. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. So Moses went down to the people and told them the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If you wanted to summarize the Ten Commandments, it'd be difficult to do it better than what Jesus did. Love God, love others. That really takes care of the ten. The ten take care of all the hundreds that would come after that. But there is one other command that God gave first. Come to me on my terms. That was in one sense the preamble commandment to the first ten commandments. You come to me not on your terms but on mine. That is the way this will be. And the question we have to ask is, what happened in the United States of America that the laws of God became either ways of impressing God or things that we interpret as God oppressing us? When did laws become that? Because what are these laws? These are God's safeguarding grace to let us know how we can have the one thing that we're afraid of, but that we want more than anything, which is him. What does it look like to be my treasured people? What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests? It means you revere me above all. It means you get rid of every other idol. It means when you speak my name, you do so in reverence. It means that you treat your parents with honor. It means that you treat truth and life with honor. That you treat marriage with honor. It means that you you accept what the Lord has granted to you and you don't pine after everything else. That's what it looks like to be my people. Oh, you're so oppressive. What are you talking about? You were slaves. I freed you, and I am aiming to transform you. And I want you here with me. I want to make you slaves doing someone else's bidding. I want to make you my kingdom, my priests, my treasure, my people. And you'll look like this. You'll be freed for this. Why did we take laws and pervert them into something else? Sinai sets a prototype for us where we understand that to come and meet with God is to be safeguarded. When God says there is a cliff there and so this fence exists, it's probably good since you don't want to fall off the cliff to respect the fence. That's not God being oppressive, it's him being protective. It's him being loving. But what it isn't is a way of the people then coming back and saying, God, when you see my holiness, I did six out of ten pretty well. Are you impressed by me? We have to come back to Sinai and say, wait, are you at the peak of the mountain or at the foot of it? Because you got to understand yourself rightly. God is trying to reshape you into who he is, not to be impressed by who you are. We find the horrors of God's holiness, but we also find the safeguards of his grace. And lastly, we find our amazement at this invitation. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. What does it mean to love God? It certainly has components of obedience, doesn't it? But there's a quote I want to end with that John Piper, um, again, he crafted this. and I thought this was a good way of just understanding how wonderful it is to be invited to God in the first place. He says, when God says that love for Him is the condition Israel must meet in order to share the covenant blessings. It's like saying that the condition you must meet in order to benefit from your vacation is to enjoy the sunset. I like that picture of coming to God. Every other god in Egypt required some sort of weird trickery, some sort of man-made mountain, some sort of effort on the part of the Egyptian royalty and priesthood in order to impress the people at least a little bit. God requires none of that. He's just impressive. He's just the Grand Canyon deities he's just the best sunset of deities and what it means for former slaves of sin to come to this God is that the one requirement is that we see him and love him is, Father, we are grateful for the fact that you, a holy God, have brought us. You've brought us here once again to take our place at the foot of the mountain with the slaves and to realize you don't want us to be slaves anymore. And so we pray, Father, don't let us Lose this mountain when we move to the next one. Don't let us forget the horrors and the amazement. Don't let us forget your jealous love for us. Don't let us forget who you intend to transform us into. Thank you for this moment on this mountain. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship a holy God.